Good morning, my name's David. The Bible passage this morning is from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 to 13. It's found on page 737 in the Pew Bibles. Isaiah chapter 55, on page, one, uh, on page 737 of the Pew Bibles. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, David. Let me pray as we begin our consideration of God's purposes this morning. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, as Kaz said, Today and for the next two weeks, we're having a vision series, a launch series, if you like, as we orient ourselves for the year ahead, uh, our year ahead as a fellowship, and what we hope to see God accomplish in us and through us. And for many years at this time of year, we've had a sermon series on the three priorities. We have three priorities as a church, reach the lost, disciple the young, and grow believers. And I was saying to one of our regulars a few weeks ago, um, I said, oh, we're going to do a launch series looking at our vision. He said, what about that priority series? I can set my watch by that series, he said. <laughs> he said we have not, the priorities do describe what goes on around here. You could call them our, our job description or our mission statement or something. But our vision, our vision is to be an overflowing church. And that's what we're going to be f- uh, focusing on for this, uh, this short series. Now, the full, the full vision statement, 
which is three short paragraphs, has all sorts of great stuff in it. Um, we summarise it by saying we want to be a church that overflows in joy as we, as we know and deepen our love for and response to the Lord and impact as we bless the community around us and growth as we see more and more people come to know and love Jesus. Joy, impact and growth. But let me take you to the top line. It says this, 10 years from now, St. James will be a spiritually vibrant church grounded in the gospel, notice this, whose joy and confidence in God overflows in boldness. Whose joy and confidence in God overflows in boldness to do courageous things for his purposes in the inner west and beyond. And the reason I've, I've got that there is to help us recognise the vision to be an overflowing church is not a vision that we will just somehow become great or we'll do this remarkable thing. The vision to be an overflowing church is describing what we think should be our response to God. A church whose joy and confidence in God overflows in boldness to do courageous things. The whole thing really is driven by having the right vision of God. It's the right vision of God that will unleash overflow in our life as a community. And uh, today I'm going to take us to that vision of God. We, a, a couple of weeks ago, it was my first, uh, we, have, we have lunch together as a staff team every Thursday. It was my first week back. And so Kat said, oh, Blake, our, our new minister, was with us. We said, oh, it's our first get-together. We should do a bit of a get-to-know-you thing. And we had all these prompt questions in a hat. And we passed them around and had to take out the prompt question, read it out, and give the answer. And my prompt question, I think this could have been a stitch-up, but anyway, my prompt question was, if you had a warning label, what would it be? The staff thought this was hilarious. They thought this is a great wheeze. I know they seem like intelligent people to you when you see them here on Sundays, but, you know. <laughs> um, anyway, what was interesting is a consensus formed very quickly on what my warning label should be. <laughs> Something along the lines of, do not interrupt. You know, do not disturb. I, I don't see the humour in this. Like any rational person... <laughs> When I'm working on something important, I don't like to be interrupted. <laughs> but what I, I reflected on this, what was interesting to me about it was the sense that the, my colleagues have of me, the expectations they have of me, shapes their approach to me. So they think, okay, we know he's, we know he's the do not interrupt guy, and so I, I assume they hesitate before bursting in. The expectations we have of someone actually does affect how we approach that person, what our posture towards them is, how we, how we pre-curate our interactions with them, our behaviour towards them. And of course, this is true of God. And so it's vital that we have an accurate and biblical understanding of who God is. Because our sense of, of the labels, if you like, that God wears will shape how we approach him, what we will and won't seek from him, what we do and don't hope from him. 
Those expectations, if you like, shape what it means if you're a Christian believer as you sit here this morning. What it looks like for you to be a Christian is downstream from your expectations of God, who you think God is. That's what shapes what it looks like for you to live for him. And if you're joining us this morning and you're exploring the Christian faith, maybe you wouldn't necessarily say, oh, I'm a Christian, but you know, he, you're here in church, and so the chances are that means you, you have a belief in God or you're open to a belief in God. And I say, if that's you, refining the clarity and accuracy of that understanding of who God is is the most important work you can do. Because our expectations of God, our sense of who he is, will determine everything about our response to him and what we think it means to live for him and in his world. And I want to take just one example, which I think is relevant to St. James this morning. I've worked up the, uh, the pseudoscientific two-by-two matrix here. Think about our, our expectations of God. On the vertical matrix, you've got God can at the top and God can't at the bottom. And the horizontal uh, uh, axis, I should say, you've got God won't at the left and God will at the right. The vertical one speaks about God's capacity to do things, I guess, and the horizontal one about God's inclination to do them, his motivation, whether he wants to or not. And so you look at that and it basically gives you four options for what God might be like. In the top left, you have a God who can, no, but won't. In the bottom left, you've got a God who, who can't and wouldn't anyway. In the bottom right, you've got a God who would, but is unable, who can't. And in the top right, you've got a God who can and who will. Now, let me ask you this question. This isn't just a piece of rhetoric. Just reflect. Which, which quadrant do you think your God really belongs in? And if I can sharpen the question, based on the evidence of your life, which God is it that you believe in? Based on the evidence of your life. I suspect, I suspect, just based on my, uh, my ministry among you, that many, maybe even most St. James people have a version who tends to be in the top left. A God who can, but tends not to. A God who can, but probably won't. In other words, we have low expectations of God. I think most St. James people would say, we believe in God's sovereign power. We wouldn't say, no, no, God actually can't do things. He can't help me. But we, we don't think he will. We're above the line, but we're on the left. And that plays out in all sorts of little ways that we wouldn't even necessarily put into, put into practice and articulate. It's just embedded in us that we... We're not really expecting God to bring about a, a transformative work in my life this year. We just kind of know that, that that isn't going to happen. Or in other ways, you think, we don't really think 
God will save my friend if only I will pray for them faithfully. We don't really think that will happen. Or that if we do something, something radical, particular boldness in, in some financial decision or in our, in our personal witness, that God will meet us and vindicate us in that with a breakthrough experience of his power and his faithfulness. And because we're evangelicals and you know, we, we tend to think this stuff through theologically, we say, no, no, it's, it's not that I don't believe God wants to, but you know, God's will, God's sovereignty, it's all very mysterious and you know, you've got you to factor that stuff in. The point is, the God revealed in the Bible who sent his son to die and who raised him from the dead and who pours out his spirit is consistently provided, uh, uh, described in the Bible as a God who can and will. And perhaps I should have said a God who can and does. A God who can and does. A God who overflows, I want to say. And for us to become an overflowing church, for you to become an overflowing person, I think the, the, the spiritual work for most of us, St. James, is to move across from the left toward the right, to raise our expectations of God from a God who can but probably won't to a God who can and will. Because that's the only God to be found in the Bible. And that's the God who underpins our vision statement. When we say our joy and confidence in God will overflow in boldness, it's joy and confidence because we know that God can and will. Our joy and confidence in God overflows in boldness to do courageous things. That's a community who knows a God who can and will. And I want to uh, touch on three things in the time that remains this morning. What it looks like for us to become an overflowing church in view of this God. Firstly, I'll talk about low expectations. Secondly, the God who can and will. And thirdly, raising expectations. Low expectations, the God who can and will, raising expectations. Um, having low expectations is not a new problem in the life of God's people. I don't know whether we should be consoled by this, but you meet it all the time in the Bible. There were so many examples. I started, they were all in my draft sermon. I went through gradually editing them all out. And I decided to focus in on that generation of God's people who came out of Egypt and uh, went through the wilderness, which the New Testament so often uses as a test case or a cautionary tale. And it is a persistent trait of God's people to underestimate him, and especially, like us perhaps, to underestimate not his capacity to act. We believe he can. It's rare for anyone in the Bible to say, I just don't think God is up to this, but to doubt his willingness to act. And so you have this, uh, this generation who sees a miraculous rescue from Egypt. You know the story, I dare say, from those early chapters of Exodus. The plagues, how Pharaoh is confronted with his own limitation in the face of God's supreme power. And out they come in the dramatic events of Passover. And so they know that God can, that they're dealing with a powerful God. And yet, when they reach the edge of the sea, we have this famous event in uh, Exodus 14, 
They looked back, Pharaoh's uh, pursuing. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. There were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord, I might add in brackets, who had just miraculously rescued them from slavery. They cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because, they, they still find time for irony, this is good. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They have moved from the right to the left. They've got a God who can but won't in that moment, which is why they panic. Now, of course, there's a spectacular work of salvation. You know the story that God slows down the Egyptians, parts the water, through they go. Now, the question is, is that a lesson learned? Ah, oh, silly us. A God who can and will, a God who can and does. It is not. Two chapters later, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. The Israelites said, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. This, is a, this will be the nine o'clock weekend away, by the way. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And you know, it's, the danger for us is just we'll point the finger at those and say, ah, oh, these numbskulls. But it's telling us it is so hard to retain that lesson that God can and will, especially when our circumstances overwhelm us. There's a crisis. God's willingness to save and to bless and to deliver on the promise that he gave them. Of course, again, he intervenes to save. And I think it's no coincidence that a few chapters later, when in an extraordinary moment, God addresses Moses face to face and speaks very briefly about his character. What he says is to draw Moses and the Israelites' attention to his love, his willingness, the fact that he is for them and will deliver on his promises. This is from Exodus 34. The Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. If only they could remember this. And faithfulness. This is not a God who is going to bring you out of Egypt to see you slaughtered on the, the shores of the sea. And he's not a God who's going to bring you through the sea to see you starve to death in the wilderness. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And yet he's not... He's not unprincipled, as if wickedness is irrelevant to him. It says, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation. When he speaks to Moses and says, here's what you need to remember about me, it's words that will help them keep in mind that top right hand. This is a God who can and will. And yet, one more example. When they reach the borders of the promised land, having been through all this, he has again drifted to the left in their hearts and become a God who can, but probably won't. So in the book of Numbers, 
They get to the border, they spy out the land. The men who had gone up with Caleb said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. As if the Egyptians weren't. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or, or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bring us to this land? Only let us fall by the sword. Now, our circumstances or your circumstances might not be so dramatic. Pursuing armies and all the rest of it. But we aren't so different. Don't we tend to take the promises of God kind of with a pinch of salt? And we see them in the Bible. We hear Jesus say, whatever you ask the Father in my name will be given you. Think, well, yeah, sure. I mean, that's what you've got to understand is, you know. And we need to spot this as, the, I think, the key spiritual challenge. It's a good challenge. It's not, we need not feel humiliated by it, but to say, yes, we have to move from that top left to the top right, to go from a God who can but won't to a God who can and does, a God who can and will. Because as long as we're in that top left, the Christian life is it's, it's unexciting. We become a bit jaded. We become shy in our life for God. We become risk-averse. We pray with a, a hint of pessimism and we're just kind of going through the motions. We become non-expectant of God's intervention in our lives. And so my second point is a God who can and will because going along with that key trait of God's people that we see in the scripture, one of the dominant themes of God's word Throughout the Bible, on the lips of the prophets and the apostles, and sometimes from the mouth of God himself, a dominant message, one of the great projects of God's word, is to speak this truth, that he's a God who can and will, that he's this overflowing God, to call out low expectations and point them and therefore us to higher things. And the key for setting expectations is not looking at our circumstances, and saying, well, it's been like this for a long time. But rather look at the promises and character of God. And I've chosen Isaiah 55 to, to glance through this morning, partly because it, it, it gets us past approaching this conceptually. And you, you hear a first-person uh, proclamation, oracle, if you like, of God himself urging his people, urging us, to, uh, to see that he's a God who can and will. These words were first spoken by Isaiah to his hearers in a time of impending national calamity. Um, among other things, Jerusalem was besieged by the Assyrians. And as you read through Isaiah, he doesn't sugarcoat some of the bad things that are in store for them. But listen to this oracle from a God who can and will. Isaiah 55. Come. Listen to these words. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. Is this your God, by the way? Do you recognize his voice in these words? You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread, your labor on what is not satisfied? Listen, 
listen to me and eat what is good. You will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful promise to David. My faithful love promised to David. He's saying, ignore your circumstances. The fact you have no money in this metaphor. He's saying, no, no. Look to me. Come to me. As I say, he speaks in the depths of a national emergency. And it's explicitly a call for response. He's not saying, keep in mind, this is what I'm like. He's saying, relate to me on this basis. Trust me. And this free feast, which is a picture of of turning to God for pardon and for help. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. What a promise. Call on him while he is near. Let that wicked forsake their ways, the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord. He'll have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. See, this is a God in the top right quadrant. He's saying, just show up. He's greater and more wonderful, more generous than they, or perhaps we dare hope or imagine. And uh, he's unfailing in accomplishing his promises. So he goes on. As the rain and snow come down from heaven, they don't return without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish. So it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It won't return to be empty. It'll accomplish what I desire, achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God accomplishes his purpose through his word, through his promises. They can be trusted. And this, this short prophecy, this oracle, ends with a vision of renewing the world and his people being caught up in that. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. The trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. It's glorious. And the point of the, the, point of the passage is respond. It's an invitation. Come, he says. To live in the light of a God who can and will keep his word. To place our joy and our confidence in this and to act accordingly. To overflow in response to a God who's overflowing. Now, of course, this is in the Old Testament. And as Bible people, we understand that these things come to a fulfillment in the new. All of this culminates in Jesus, this God and his promises. And especially in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection for you. This is the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 55 because in the cross, when you see Jesus on the cross, suddenly you understand that line about the fulfillment of God's promise to David through his own descendant, Jesus. You understand how a just God can also call and invite and pardon the wicked. You understand that the renewal of the whole creation has begun in the resurrection of Jesus. The cross shows you a God who can and will. But if I can put it this way, it only shows you that because Jesus took our place. And on the cross, Jesus experiences a terrible moment in which God can and won't 
save. It's a remarkable thing to gaze upon. That Jesus experiences on the cross for our sake abandonment and non-rescue from the God who can save in order that you and I will only ever know a God who can and does. This is the miracle of the cross. And so, raised from the dead, Jesus proclaims authoritatively Isaiah's invitation. Come to me, he says. Come to me. Trust in me. He will never abandon those who put their faith in him. And so the Bible urges us to have high expectations. Romans says this. I just find this a completely watertight piece of argumentation. What shall we say in response to these things? He's speaking of the cross. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That is the key memory verse for, for us who tend to live in that top left box. He who did not spare his son, how will he not graciously give us all things? This is a God who can and will. And so my final point on raising expectations is that becoming an overflowing church is not something that's inherent in us. It's not talking about our potential. It will be the result of us seeing that we have an overflowing God. We need the expectations of God that he himself urges us to have the high expectations of God, which will move us to overflow as his people. Centuries ago, in 1792, in uh, Nottingham, England, one of the most impactful sermons in all of church history was preached. It's by a man called William Carey, who later was uh, nicknamed the father of modern missions. And Carey, he clearly saw this link between Christians' expectations of God and their willingness to act in overflow. And the two main points of his sermon, he only had two points, the two points of his sermon uh, became a slogan that just electrified people and still does. It was this, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. That's the connection between expectations and actions between a vision of God and overflow. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things from God. And let me give you this rule of thumb. Christians who believe in a God who can and will, and they walk among us, they always look a little bit, they always seem a little bit reckless. They always seem a little bit reckless. We hear that, for those of us who are St. James Regulars, we hear, oh, Jen and Bass, they seem like pretty sane people. They've decided to take their three small kids and walk out in the middle of uh, promising careers. They've gone off to uh, South Asia to work in a, a mission school. It seems a bit reckless, doesn't it? 
That's because they realise God can and will. Or even someone like Blake. Uh, we haven't all met him yet. He'll be at our weekend away next, uh, next uh, weekend. He accepts a role at St James based on our vision that hasn't yet come to fruition. A bit reckless. <laughs> Left his old job. He believes in a God who can and will. But it, it's too comfortable to say, oh, well, that's kind of full-time ministry and uh, missionaries who don't expect to be in their league. But, you know, it, this, is, this is for all of us. When you revise your, your ministry giving upwards in the, in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis, that's a bit reckless. But that might be because you believe in a God who can and will. Or when you... When you encourage your, your child to keep leading kids' ministry in their HSC year, yeah, it feels a bit reckless, especially with paying private school fees and whatnot. Right? But maybe that's because you believe in a God who, who can and will. Or when you, you, when you take a genuine credibility risk and invite someone to an explore course. Or to some Christian thing, maybe to church. Or when you risk the conflict and humiliation and say to your family, years after you should have, I think we should have a regular prayer time together as a family to see how that goes down. <laughs> but you believe in a God who can and will. A little bit reckless. Or when you frankly share with someone, when you, when you frankly share with someone what Jesus means to you, or when you get sick of this sin that has dogged you these many years or even decades and you decide, I am, going to, I am going to disclose this to someone and ask them to pray. And you know it will lower their view of you. And it's a bit reckless, but you think, this is, I, I believe in a God who can and will deliver me from this if I will respond to him. These are the everyday things. And one of the wonderful things about that, that post-it note feedback is it, just the reminder, because we forget, just the reminder of the wonderful and transformative work that God does in normal people's lives here at St. James. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. The risen Jesus opens for us a God who can and will. And I want to say, I want to leave you with, with this homework question. What what slightly reckless thing will you do in his service in 2024? Discuss. What slightly reckless thing? You think, I'm going to do something that reflects a God who can and will. And you know, just yesterday, as, as I was finalising these kinds, one occurred to me, I thought, there's a situation in the life of someone close to me that I've just kind of priced it in. I thought, no, I'm going to start praying for that situation. I don't have to just... Be fatalistic. God can and will. We have to leave our inaccurate top left view of God in order to become a church whose joy and confidence in God overflows in boldness to do courageous things for his purposes in the inner west and beyond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your patience with us. We pray to you this morning as the God who can and will. And we ask that by your spirit, 
we would live in the light of that great truth, that we would, we would be a little more reckless in our life for you, knowing that you will meet us and vindicate your faithfulness. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.